Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Brett. Brett, welcome to the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Hey, um, yep. Yeah, so my name is Brett Edwards. I'm an academic uh, lecturer uh, in England, University of Bath. Um, and over the years, I've become progressively more kind of interested, like levels of nerddom, in the history of chemical and biological weapons of warfare, of all things. And most of my day to day looks at how to sort of prohibit them, how to ensure they stay illegal and uh, also helping sort of raise awareness among sort of scientists and practitioners about this kind of history and and those sorts of things and we touch upon all sorts of kind of ethical and legal questions about limits of science and the morality of war and, and those types of things so it's kind of an expansive area where would you like to start because i just get to this aspect of like biological warfare chemical warfare i know a lot about it um mostly not really about the american history on the concept but more about overseas type things um, I always bring up this uh, plan that happened around World War II, which was Operations Cherry Blossoms at Night, which was that um, Japan, um, before they were going to attack us again, after, well, before we actually bombed them um, during like, Hiroshima and all that, there was an instance where they had a submarine that was off the coast of, I think it was California or something like that. And it was, they had missiles in there, or these little bombs, and these bombs were filled with like 150 thousand or something like that fleas and these fleas were filled with bubonic plague and just that call would have been made but we bombed them and then this was like an event that just didn't happen and you say this type of stuff and people go that doesn't sound real it's like no it is real it's a lot of what goes on in our military there's a lot like they just found that sub recently or something like that a russian sub that was like off the coast so i go there's so many things where it's like someone has a gun to your head 24 seven and it gets even crazier. Cause if you go into biological warfare and chemical warfare, you're manipulating things that can be seen as like common items, like things that we can come and be exposed to every single day that has now just been weaponized. Yeah. So it's, it's mad. Like, so that, that sort of story you talked about there, there are so many, many stories of this and often they don't come out until 20, 30 years later often these stories are products of propaganda and so part of the kind of um i guess the challenge of working in this area is learning how to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and often finding out the kind of half truths that are buried in these things so in my work at the moment i was like these stories are fascinating right they are interesting and they're interesting because of what they involve and also the kind of i guess the moral questions like about when's it okay to do things that are you know, most civilizations would go, that's completely not, not cool. And so in my work, I decided right then, how far back have humans used chemical biological weapons? So this is basically poisons or disease. And so I decided to do sort of like a, a podcast show. And I was like to kind of help keep me honest. So I had to report my findings every week. So I couldn't just sort of wander off. And so I went back and 
you can find evidence of humans wishing disease upon each other, for example, like as far back as we've been writing stuff down, even when we were knocking it into cuneiform tablets, there was people talking about how they wish disease upon their neighbor, but they didn't understand what disease was. So the actual practice of biological warfare is probably a, a lot younger than, than that. However, if you look at things like poisons, now we've been using poisons for a very long time and particularly in animal hunting, and so we have evidence of like poisons on arrows going back tens of thousands of years. Um, some people argue that we've been hunting with poison arrows way before 70,000 years, but we probably have physical artifact evidence back 70,000 years. And it doesn't sort of take a massive leap of the imagination to imagine that in tribal kind of societies where you had local war infections, people would have used poison arrows against each other. And indeed, um, when we see the emergence of like the first civilizations, so this is like the early Greeks, they're always talking about, or at least in their myths, there's lots of reference to kind of barbarian peoples using poison arrows, as if kind of like before people moved to the cities, they had this knowledge of poisons. When they became more sedentary, they settled down, became farmers, had different models of warfare, but there were still these tribes on the borders who used these old kind of skills. So the Romans, for example, when they were trying to take over Britain and Europe talked a lot about the Celts and how they still fired poison arrows. But is it propaganda, right? So this might also just be them going, these are barbarians. This is something barbarians would do. They're scary. It's kind of just a way of telling a story to people back home. So in the deep history, we've been talking about it for a long time. There was a means to do it for a long time that it doesn't, it's not until we get to much more recently that we can start A, talking about like specific potential incidents that we could actually assess if they happened or not. And then it's not until really recently that we'd actually hope of like proving something happened or not. Um, so yeah, so I guess there's a huge expansive area to cover. Well, I, I feel like it's an issue with technology as well, too. Like we just learned to weaponize everything, even like basic things like one individual thing can now be a weapon or can be weaponized a bacteria, a type of aerosol, something like that. But then if you look back in history, like it's been throughout all of our history, there's been talks about poisons. I mean, a poison apple is in one of the biggest fairy tales out there as well, too. Poison darts. I know a lot of people probably think like if you would pick a plot point of where it would start, they'd probably say like, oh, when they put like some type of plant on Native American blankets or something like that. That's usually what people know because that's kind of like as far back as usually they decide to go unless they go down a career path for it. But then you really start examining history and you start looking. It's like, I'm surprised it was in the 70s that we decided to ban it all. Like someone had the common sense of like, this is getting too out of hand. I mean, Caesar, all these types of incidences where you look through Greek history, there's ideas of poison and assassination attempts. And a lot of people don't even know this, but the ancient Egyptians, when they, you know, carve things into stone, you notice how every single one of those people are skinny is because the way that they recorded their history, they didn't put any fat people. There were obviously people that there that were bigger and didn't look exactly like the ideal image, but they go, we didn't want that to be recorded in our history because it was seen as like a slight or something like that. And one thing that they didn't record was the fact of their usage of psychedelics. They used massive that we're finding out now. And I start going, you have so many aspects that people are studying with drugs. And eventually you start using this drug of like, well, I know he likes this type of mushroom in his, in his wine glass. 
maybe I can find a way to add something to that and make it into a poison. I mean, these ideas are not new. You're not sadistic for thinking of these types of things. It's horrible if you perform it, sure. But you got to look at an examination of just like the human capacity to want to find something, use something that could be beneficial and find a way to weaponize it. Yes. So let's talk about three things. First of all, there's poisoning, which you just talked about, which is fascinating. You can go back to a guy called Mithridates, who was an enemy of, of Rome, and he was convinced he was going to get poisoned, mainly because a lot of his sort of family had the habit of getting poisoned. It was quite a competitive environment to be a, a ruler in. He was also, by the sounds of it, a bit of a nerd and a bit of an archivist. And so he compiled like a book of poisons. And in this book, he kind of talks about different ways of, of poisoning and in particular, different ways of like producing antidotes for everything. There's like a whole diatribe on like poisoning ducks to make them anyway, properly mad stuff. But that was this idea of like the fear of assassinate, fear of poisoning, which is plays a role, I think, in modern day understandings of poisoning as a potential weapon of the weak, which is something you often hear. It's kind of like a non-confrontational, sneaky way of, of killing someone. Isn't it? Poison's a great equalizer, right? So there's that kind of idea. And that goes back a long way. And as you say, in terms of thinking about when people discovered and started thinking about being able to poison people, you know, people would have accidentally poisoned themselves. This is, you know, in very, very early civilization, pre-civilization societies with early, you know, with, with a developed knowledge of their local surroundings, things that they knew could kill people, could poison their animals, could poison them. Drinking mercury on accident. That was always a fear yeah, when you, I was a you, kid. Yeah, you do that once, right? And then the other thing is like, kind of the more ethnobotanical so like we know that people were using like cocaine like a long long time ago i mean we even have ancient like, egyptians they found it in their dreads yeah we find it in the teeth and, and those sorts of things there's even i read a quite a sad story but it's a story anonymous it's worth sharing is you know there's there's some evidence that perhaps even um the idea of kind of killing someone out of you know if, if they're at the end of their life and making their passing easier those there is some evidence at least in the archaeological record that that may have been a practice in some societies so we knew we've known that for a long time humans are curious clever you know clever things so there's that so that goes back a long way poisoning the history of poisoning is very very long and there's society specific rituals and different people would have different forms of knowledge it'd be very much dependent on what was local to you what kind of other kind of practices you were engaged with that made you were in close contact with poisoning. I mean, you weren't finding tree frogs in Northern Europe, but if you were living in certain parts of the world, they were there everywhere. So there's that. Second thing is like, like when did it become part of like warfare? Now, warfare, as you know, kind of emerges as this kind of, like anything, it kind of evolves the practice and it relates to the way societies are organized. So early on, small band tribal warfare, you become more sedentary. Then there's the potential of starting to have standing, standing armies, trained trained standing armies bureaucracies societies that become very much like basically they, they are organized around conquering city states and neighbors and so they become very high high-tech highly organized militaries and chemical or biological weapon warfare has always been if it where it has happened we're not always sure it has been happening often improvised often niche okay so the example of improvised niche warfare from a, you know, that we know goes back to say the romans would be utilizing sulfur so uh, sulfur burns very hot it also produces a smoke and we know that when the romans went on campaign 
they would often take sulfur and pitch with them because if you need to burn down a city, it's a great way of starting a fire. It also produces toxic smoke. And there's a paper, I'll, I'll share it later on, this, this story of, and because of the way the archaeology works, there was tunnel warfare at a city called Jura Europus against the um, Assyrians a long, long time ago. This little outpost city, it's still there in Syria because of nothing was built on it. So you can still see this thing from above. And during this tunnel warfare, there's evidence because the tunnels collapsed and it's almost like a time capsule of like a day's battle, which is kind of bonkers if you think about it. It's like one day is conserved in the, and it looks like what happened was um, two rival tunneling groups and basically one decided to smoke the other out by starting a fire with sulfur. They found the spire, they found the evidence of the fire, they found the evidence of the sulfur, and then they found loads and loads of dead Romans, suggesting that what happened was they basically gassed them in a tunnel. So that's potentially the earliest case of, you know, evidenceable sort of uh, smoke or poison gas warfare we, we, remember, we have. But it, as an improvised practice, of course, like, like the Chinese, we know that they've been messing about with smoke bombs for, for thousands and thousands of years. On the biological side, in warfare, it's kind of, that, that history goes back, but it's kind of difficult because we didn't really understand disease until like the 18th and 19th century. So if you did kill someone biological, by biological means, it's probably more by look and judgment or by coincidence. So you think you're doing one thing, but you end up doing something else. So miasmic theory was like the big theory of disease, right? So bad smell causes disease. So some of the earliest claims of you know, what we would probably call biological warfare today are the idea of people chucking dead stuff or shit over walls into like, besieged cities. And the invaders always think it's the smell. So they think they're causing miasmic disease. But of course, as modernists, we know, well, actually, that maybe that's could actually also spread disease. Now, just because something's unhygienic doesn't necessarily mean it's kind of going to be as a, a, a successful weapon there's certainly make you know, sort of damage ruin your day though won't it if you're sat there you've got dead sheep coming over it and stuff this doesn't all really matter but if you go back to the 14th uh, 14th century you've got the black death right so the really famous and one of the famous earliest stories is this idea that the black death entered europe through um formosa through modern day crimea as a siege and it's this idea that um you have plague on the, on the steppe and the Mongol troops, they came and besieged the city and they catapulted plague carrying soldiers, dead soldiers over the wall into the city. Those soldiers then spread the plague to the local inhabitants who then carried, and then it was a Venetian city. So their sailors then carried it to Europe. Okay, so this whole myth has come out of this idea that, the, that this siege was where the Black Death entered Europe, which of course would be like the most significant, I mean millions of people died, it would have been the most significant act of biological warfare we've ever had. Problem is it probably didn't happen like that. So we know, for example, that the plague did enter uh, through that route and it did enter through the Venetians and it entered probably through that point as well, the city. But what's more likely is that when the uh, besiegers came down, they had rats with them, the rats then moved into the city, and then the city, the rats spread the fleas. But the story is really famous because there was kind of like a contemporary report of what happened. And in this, this report from someone who was only about one years old when it happened, but it, it, he was a local uh, Venetian. So he would have known the people that had been there, potentially his father may have been 
on the ships, for example. But he claims this was kind of the act that led to the spread of the plague into Europe. And so since that time, you pick up a, a history book, it will say like the first instance of biological warfare is this. It's not, but so we could say, I oh, don't bother teaching it, but what's interesting is it's got all these interesting dimensions, right? So it's got, what counts as a biological weapon? Do you have to understand it? Well, I think you do to make it like biological warfare. You have to know what you're doing just to make it work, but also I think in terms of assessing people ethically and morally, like did they know that's what they were doing? Can we be sure? No, we know a disease spread through the city, but how do you distinguish a natural from a purposeful disease outbreak? That's interesting, right? And these questions are what we get today when we have biological incidents, same stuff. And then there's kind of questions about, you know, the kind of different methods for tracing the spread of a disease, how reliable witnesses are and all those sorts of things. So that would be one of the earliest biological ones. Okay. So would Genghis Khan count as well too, because wasn't he taking dead bodies and putting them on catapults and lighting them on fire and tossing them onto Thatcher's roofs? So I mean, I don't think he figured it out. Like this is how we're. I think that that was obviously a sign of like I'm don't mess with me. But I think that's still like that's early stuff. Yeah, yeah. So as th there would be the earliest things that people in the contemporary world have gone. That's biological warfare, right? Okay, but usually in those cases, we're not sure if they happened. And we're not sure, well, should it really count as biological warfare? And that's not just a case of saying, well, would it be effective? Um, but also, like, if they don't know that's what they're doing, does that, does that count? So there's been, some there's been lots of discussion about fleas. I'm really sorry, but it's going to happen, okay? So basically, right, let's go through this. So we know that the Black Death spread to Europe through the siege on Crimea, and we know that the town, this besieged town was inflammated and basically because of the city where it was, it was the edge of the trade route from Europe. So if the disease was going to come into Europe, it would have come through this route anyway, even if there hadn't been a siege or a war. If anything, if there hadn't been a war, it probably would have come through quicker because of better trade links, okay? The question is though, is during a siege where we're supposedly these sides are separated, would tossing a body with fleet with plague infested fleas because that's how the disease spread would that have technically or hypothetically could that have actually have led to the disease being spread into the city so would it be technically possible and there's been like three or four papers on this like it's it's, it's been repeatedly assessed and a lot of it comes down to the question of like so how long would you wait to so say one of your buddies dies of plague and you've been like fighting with him for the past few weeks how long would you wait before sticking him on a catapult and shucking him over the wall into kind That's of the a moral opposition? question? That's a big moral but question. Like, practically speaking, like, I mean, would you? I mean, maybe you're like, oh, he loved his job, so he'd want this. Like, he'd want to be launched almost straight away, <laughs> straight over the wall. Or would you have like a respectful pause and wait for him to cool down, at least give him a day before you decide to choose chuck his body over over the wall? And what is course, it? It's a moment of silence. That's what it is. You just give them a moment of silence. So there's been discussion about this. And of course, there's been then people have looked at the kind of death and ritual practice around that. Like, so how like likely would it have been? What would the norm have been? Like, would he have been buried straight away? So there's all that sort of discussion. So that's the first type of the question. Like, is it likely that they actually would have chucked bodies of their own soldiers over the wall? OK, and we're not sure. OK, so. The second one is like, assuming they waited for a little bit, fleas 
don't like eating humans at the best of times, right? They're rat fleas. The only reason they're on the humans is because all their rat hosts have strangely died of plague. So they then get hungry and go and look for humans to eat, which is how the humans then get the plague. So these fleas are kind of, they're on the human, they're eating the human, but it's a bit like having a really bad takeaway. They're kind of like, they're not pleased themselves. They're not, they'd they rather not be chowing down on this human at the best of times. So a dead human is even less appealing as a kind of, as a host and a feast. So as soon as that person stops, heart stops beating, those fleas, they're gonna leave that person, right? So if there is any pause, it means that the body goes cold. A few fleas may have inadvertently remained on the body and got thrown over, but more than likely there's no fleas left. And even if the body did land, are you suggesting that people are gonna go and quickly move that body? Very unlikely. And so there's all these been discussions about like, even if it did happen, would it actually have been a, a, a would that vector have worked. So it may even be technically impossible. It certainly wouldn't be how you did it now if you had on the technical side. So there's all those questions. Basically, is it socially, would it, the social norms have made it likely? Would it be technically possible or feasible? And those sorts of things. I think when you look at anything that has to be like before morals and values or maybe the way that like how, I mean, you can see, like, I know we talk about like the morals and values of 2020, but if you look at the morals and values of like the 1940s, I mean, the 19, like just the 1900s is completely different than when you look at 1800s, 1700s, 1600s. And before that, anything back then, I don't really think they understood the whole idea of perspective. Like we have writings about how advanced they were and talks about how advanced they were, but also it was a, very, very intimate relationship with war. You know, war was something easily done. So when you look at someone tossing a body over on a catapult that's on fire, that's not necessarily like they were like, oh, we're going to do it because of the fleas. I think it's the same thing with burn pits where people that were exposed near burn pits were inhaling those that dead tissue. And that is in part is like um another topic I'm really interested in is Hutch. It's, it's, I think it's Crutchfield syndrome or Hutch's Crutchinson syndrome or something like that. And you only get it by eating brain tissue and spinal tissue. And that's like mad cow disease for humans. I mean, like you can look at a way like now, even I'm not even a biological warfare, or chemical warfare, like experimenter, but I go, it would be very effective if you could somehow slip human tissue into some type of person's food and have them get this type of disease. I mean, I think there's specific points you could look at like today that would be good markers for history. But also I think if we look at history, a lot of that shit was like, we're going to send a message by tossing over the enemy's own comrades on fire onto their roof that their family is eating dinner in. Yeah. So there's lots of things like that. But the, tr the point is, as you say, the ethical standards or moral standards or social conventions were different, but they were there. So for example, like the burial rites, how soldiers tended to treat their fallen comrades at that point in history would have been relevant to making assessment today about how likely it was that that behavior would have, would have happened. So there's lots of things like that. The other one, the other type of accusation you get, which isn't chucking dead things over walls or poo over walls or animals, which we get, by the way, all the way up to about the 18th century. I haven't found a case yet where I think there's enough evidence to kind of say happened. Um, I certainly think it may have been something that was done occasionally, but the problem is most of the writings we get about it come from second or third hand sources, which is history, so it works for that period. And the ones that we do have, like written record, very often they're highly exaggerated claims, like there were mountains of dead thrown over the wall, or they were, it's clear that there's exaggeration there. I mean, do you think historically speaking, people do it every so often? 
a hundred percent. Do you think it was like a practice doctrine where they almost like habitually did it? I'm less sure. But as you say, like if you're sat bored and annoyed and diseased and flea bitten and you're besieging a city and you're there for a season, I mean, boredom or anger at some point, you're going to start doing stuff just because why not? You've got, a I mean, you've got a trebuchet, I mean, or whatever you've got. I mean, you, it's, it's that bit of human nature I don't think has changed. Like people, particularly if they see the other as the humanized monster that they just want to torment, of course. So there's that sort of stuff. The other well, leg of this, well, sorry, well, can I get your perspective on like, when we talk about biological warfare, could we like look at, when we look at the Black Plague, could we just say that was an unintended biological warfare in a sense? I mean, you can still chalk it up to the warfare standards, but I think warfare intends purpose. I think if you accidentally bring over rats that are infected with something, that's just unintended. It's different. And another example would be Romeo and Juliet. I mean, she purposely poisoned herself because, uh, and you get into this aspect, like that's something that's two things right there you can consider them both technically biological warfare but then we look at the warfare aspect gets taken out when you look at doing it to yourself but i mean that's it's still a warfare it might not be a warfare between you know you and somebody else but it's a warfare between your body's balance and whatever bacteria that you're bringing in that's cool and like well, the other thing is like warfare like war is horrible and like full and old like warfare even today, you get like cholera outbreaks in war zones, you get disease, public health infrastructure gets destroyed, fam you get famine, which means more people are more vulnerable to disease. So very often an invasion would coincide with disease outbreaks. And like this is like historically recorded. And sometimes locals would go, they're poisoning us, they're poisoning the wells or whatever. But very often it was just a case of like, A, famine and waterborne diseases, which are caused by you know, failure of crops and by people having to drink dirty water, venereal diseases and those sorts of things caused by sexual violence and those sorts of things from invading forces. So this relationship between disease and warfare and infectious disease warfare is, is, is ancient. Um, but it's not until the modern era where humans, and this is why these biological weapons really are a modern concept, because it's not really until the kind of 21st century that humans have the capability and understanding to actually do it effectively do you know what i mean so like well that was going to be my question but i wanted i just want to hit one more thing before we go to more modern era type thing now the the black plague do you find it fascinating that when like when was the original like idea for trying to find a way to help minimize the spread of these types of diseases because if you look into the effectiveness of those doctor masks like they had smelling salts in the nose beak part of their doctor's mask where i'm like you just think that they're wearing something on their face like we did during the pandemic to cover up you know bacteria but they were like no we're gonna go above that and we're gonna put something in here so we're not breathing in and dying of these fumes and i'm like that to me is very advanced. So I start wondering with the incorporation and understanding more of biological disease or just disease in general, did we also try and find methods and ways to be able to, you know, help ourselves out in these situations? Like you said, an antidote when you're experimenting on things as well too, but also ways to minimize spread. Yes. I mean, so culturally, these are very specific things. And I'm not a historical anthropologist, but I know that anthropologists and toxicologists have looked at people how they how old societies dealt with toxins how they dealt with um, infectious diseases the thing to remember about the black death of course is that this came in waves multiple waves and so quickly people started to 
you know, well, part of it is almost intuitive, right? So people tend to have a natural aversion to strangers who look ill and those sorts of things. Unfortunately, that's not going to overcome things like a close family. You're going to, you know, that, so, but at the same time, there is some evidence of kind of often by hap, like, so this miasmic theory, classic example, right? It both helped and hindered the treatment of these diseases. So on one level, miasmic theory, the idea that bad smells cause disease would have encouraged pressure on local governments and stuff to kind of clear the streets, to encourage fresh air, to remove rotting and putrefied stuff from the streets. So that, as a, additionally, may have by chance also reduced the rat population, may also have cleaned things up. So that was, but at the same time, because people had the miasmic, and same with, with the smelling salts, right? So having that um, mask, which may have primarily been done to keep the the bad smells away may also inadvertently have offered some minimal protection from inhaling um, certain things. Um, certainly, and likewise with, uh, you know, practices of being unclean and the idea that you could pick up disease by just touching someone that wasn't based on biological understanding, it was based on kind of superstition. But sometimes these superstitions were helpful and sometimes they were a hindrance. But it's interesting, right, that by today's standards, we can almost we think we could like objectively assess them and go, look, well, you were doing that. Regardless of why you were doing it, it did work. It wouldn't have worked in those ways. Unintended uh, consequence, I would say. Exactly yeah. right. And some of those were good and some of those were bad. Before we move on to the more modern, we've got to do the other leg, which is the chemical side there. We have to, we can't leave it behind, mainly because we get to talk about poisonous flowers, right? Mm. So, yeah. Someone so, gave me a hibiscus and it was covered in iodine. Great. <laughs> so... The other story that always comes up um, is the story of how a there's the Greeks, right? The Greeks had these cities and there was lots of Greeks, lots of cities. And the way I describe it is blasphemy. But imagine like a motorway, like a freeway service station. OK, but like, like a more spiritual one. So basically, there was these cities called oracles, which were kind of like shared religious spiritual places where people could go and visit and all the neighboring cities agreed like not to pillage and burn the place and to pay some money to make like a nice holiday resort you know and also people went there to business and trade it was almost like a kind of you know, like a business center or something okay spiritual business center this war happened in fact quite a few wars happened and this uh, city was besieged and the story goes that during the siege um, there's different versions of it, but basically this city had one water supply. Um, if you want to see what the city looked like, by the way, it's an Assassin's Creed. But we'll get back to that later on. Which one? But, uh, first one. Um, but, um, the, basically the city had this water supply. They, the Greeks find the water supply. And so then they, hellebore is really poisonous, poisonous flower. So they basically... They fill the pipe or the cistern with hellebore. It then poisons the water. It then means that everyone in the city is poisoned and then they are overrun in the tax. So this kind of story, again, is told as the first example of chemical warfare. Um, and we know that the Romans, for example, like they always mess with water supply. They cut it off or they'd like, you know, uh, divert water courses and those sorts of things. Again, it's a great story. And it's a story that became like symbolic. They had like a peace conference 200 years later. And during that peace conference, they were all saying how this thing had happened and how it was terrible and how you guys are monsters. And we're not sure if it happened. <laughs> like, we really 
aren't sure if like the story actually happened. But again, today, this story of the poisoned hellebore, and we, again, hellebore technically was a poison at scale, probably would have worked, um, but it would have been like a lot of work. I mean, like they literally would have had to send like and then one of their armies out into the hills to go and pick these plants for a few weeks and then cart it all back. And it just doesn't, you know, it's a, it works on paper, but in real terms, it just seems a bit insane. But that story is like, again, if you pick up a history, it's the first one you see is like the oldest example of, of chemical warfare. Is it true? Don't know. Does it have an educational value? Yeah, sure. Well, let's take a transition from the oldest one and let's take a transition from the peak point. Now, for me, I consider a lot of the like Cold War, a lot of the stuff with like Nazis were like the peak for biological warfare is really when we started getting into some like, especially if you know about Operation Paperclip and you find out that we forgave a lot of Nazi scientists like in the Nuremberg trials and everything just because they already did the horrible research that there's no taking that back, but at least we could use it to our own advancement. And I think that's kind of where you see a lot of like biological warfare take off. But if you get into this aspect of like chemicals now, when it comes to Operation Paperclip, it was like a, a agreement between multiple countries, not just one to split up the Nazi scientists. A lot of the Americans got things in use for their space program, which is why Warner von Braun is like this main like rocketeer. People, yeah. And then you get Japan and you get Russia. Now, Russia went a different route with it. Russia kind of started going down this route of like psychological warfare, where they started thinking that they could make psychic humans, which actually eventually led to us creating a program that turned into a movie with George Clooney called Men Who Stare at Goats. But Japan got a lot of chemical stuff, which leads into operations, secret cherry blossoms at night. So everyone's going down these divergent paths. They might be picking up like little bits and pieces here, but everyone's strictly on one certain direction going down and advancing in that field as much as they possibly can with the scientists that they got. So I, I get into this part where we look at chemical warfare. I don't think it's more modern. I bring it back to the Salem witch trials. I think when you start looking at herbal medicines and the ideas of healings using different flowers and things like that, you start getting in an array of knowledge of understanding which ones can help you and which ones can hurt you. And I think that also not only boosted the whole movement of like the Salem witch trials and people being afraid of witches, but this whole idea of magic out there as well, too. I mean, if you can make a flower, necessarily we know what poison ivy is, everyone does. You get warned about it. You, can probably, you probably couldn't pick it out in like a field. Most people probably couldn't. But when you're studying these flowers and you start realizing there's like arsenic and all these other types of things that you can get from these certain flowers, I bring it to that point as being like the peak for chemical warfare because you're having people alchemy is created you're having i mean it's always been throughout history but there's like a uh, whenever you talk about alchemy or you talk about like modern day witches that'll send you a dm on instagram and say i can read your fortune and know about your ancestors that whatever they're doing where they're grinding up something with a mortar and pestle you can look at that with the witch period and during that witch period that rise of everything they're crushing down flowers they're making specific elixirs and all these types of things which will come across in the western societies as well too like cowboys and all that there's a guy selling you hair growth formula that's like fucking mercury in a bottle like it's you're not supposed to drink it but nobody knew back then but then you have people who are specifically working in the apothecary section and working with alchemy that are grinding up flowers and now coming across different types of various poisons and making salts and making all these things that can be sold as a remedy, which really could be a poison in general. Yeah. So what's amazing is like, so yeah, I mean like, gunpowder, I'm knowledgeable right? for the general public. <laughs> <laughs> gunpowder, right? So gunpowder supposedly comes from 
uh, Zen alchemists looking for elixirs of eternal life, right? Um, and certainly it came, it was a product of chemical experimentation. You read the stuff, I mean, like, they were adding in, like, horse shoes and random stuff that wasn't there for a chemical reason. It was just because that was part of the ritual, that you stick the stuff in. It's so, like, chemical warfare, what we call chemical, so chem you know, chemical weapons are old. People, if you call that poisoning a chemical weapon, right? chemical warfare is like, is more modern. So uh, let's go, let's, take, let's stick with the US, right? So American Civil War, okay? I just finished this book, which is bonkers. You know, those sections on like websites where it's like a story, and then at the bottom, people basically write like, if I was doing this, I would do this and this and this. Have you could, they're basically like shouting advice in the comment sections to news articles, like they need to go in there and do X, Y, and Z. Well, in the old days, if you wanted to shout at your TV, there wasn't TV. So what you'd do is you'd write to the patent office and you'd, 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 or you'd write to them and say, I've had this great idea for a wonder weapon to beat the union forces or whatever. And then the patent office had to read it, right? So of course they read it and they went mental and then put it in a little file somewhere and then that was it, right? So this book I've just read, uh, it's all about this, the kind of crazy suggestions people made for chemical weapons during American Civil War. And most of it was like, they knew, for example, if you heated up pepper, it did your eyes. And so pe and in the history of uh, slavery and those sorts of things, been, you, people had utilized irritants and those sorts of things for different reasons. And so there was kind of a lot of these letters of people saying, have you thought about doing this to those guys? Like, have you thought about burning this or using making smoke? And that's, that's at one level. At the other level, you also had like would-be inventors who were like, you know, I want to come and demonstrate my new flamethrower. So, and then some of these actually did do it in front of generals. And then it was always very much like kind of people's bet projects. They didn't work. The army didn't want them. And the army even went as far as like trying to put gases and liquids in shells to see if they could either into incendiary shells, which usually didn't work. Um, but also there was talk about putting poisonous gases and smokes in, in shells as well. But at that period, so at that period, people could conceive how like the availability of lots of new poisonous chemicals for, for different bits and pieces, like chlorine and other gases used in uh, things like metal work and those sorts of things. People were going, well, that's there and that's there. So why don't we stick this together and make these guys a weapon? In reality, though, like, I mean, those guys in the Civil War were just trying to like win the war. They didn't really have time for people's kind of white elephant projects. So all this stuff got filed away and forgotten about. So even though there was potentially like access to industrial production, people thinking about it and potentially niches where you could use chemical weapons. The big one was, um, you know, the ironclads, mm -hmm. uh, ironclad sh the ships, but the ironclad boats, like the metal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know what you're here. talking about. Sorry, your camera's distracting me. There you go. Uh, sorry, it's back now. Um, it's because the ironclads, it freaks, it freaks my algorithms out. But yeah, so Scares this me. idea... Yeah, if you wanted to, I think, was it called the monitor? Like, anyway, basically, ironically, it's a monitor. But no, the, the boat, the idea was that if you wanted to take that, you couldn't just blast your way in. And also, if you blasted your way in, like, you couldn't then use it. So what you do is you just, you gas the ship, and then you go in and you take the ship. Or if you were worried about your ship being overrun, you booby trap it with gas canisters so that when they take over it, they're all killed, and you can go back in and get it. So there was lots of discussions about how gases could be used for those sorts of things but it was all forgotten about it wasn't really used so again you have interest means potentially the 
like the, the right environment in which you could use it, but history wasn't lined up, so it didn't happen. There was also moral discussions about whether or not it should be done or not, but there was moral discussions about whether or not they should be firing cities and those sorts of things, you know, it's what happened. It's not until the First World War that you see, like, the Mishogans. gas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there is where you have a deadlock. You have industrial scale production, but the production of chlorine is like a hell of a lot cheaper than it was during the American Civil War. And independently, so there's no evidence that this was like them picking up these old claims from the old days. It happened in the UK, but and in Germany and in France, but it was this idea that, you know, there was a desperate situation and the Germans thought, well, and what we've got to lose, like, and there was a prohibition against this because there was a prohibition against using poisons and disease. It was foreseen in the 1910s that this could be a new phase of warfare. I mean, you had the machine gun and better artillery and warfare was becoming industrialized and people knew, they knew in the at the end of the 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, how horrific it was going to get. They knew that you were starting to see air balloons used and you were starting to see levels of destruction that on the battlefield that were just enormous again and, and potentially unlimited so you had attempts to put limits on these things and chemical weapons were something that were foreseen and they tried to ban them kind of before the war happened but 1915 the germans are in a deadlock and they decide to basically get a load of chloramine canisters loads and loads of them like hundreds of them hundreds of them along miles of um the front um, one morning they released them against troops and yeah i mean it, it's a route right so they they do this thing there's lots of discussion afterwards about like is it illegal or illegal the germans found a workaround they said well we were weaponizing the wings the wind we weren't like developing we weren't delivering poison gas shells which is prohibited explicitly we were just putting chlorine in the wind which is not this basically like a you know paper, a paper reality and so after that of course, the other states retaliated, and then they ramped up their own production and experimentation, peaking. They went on to phosgene, which has a very similar effect to chlorine, but it's more effective. It hangs on the ground, it's, it's lower. And you basically then have dedicated efforts to produce, investigate, and research, and those programs then are with us in the interwar years. So, so at the end of the First World War, you've seen mustard used, you've seen chlorine, phosgene. I think like depending on which state we're talking about, like one third of the shells delivered by the end of the war are gas shells. And it was very much seen as like a essential force multiplier. It wasn't necessarily like the, the shock weapon. It was a weapon that you just as standard would use as part of an assault. It was better for long range or when you're not having troops go in. Cause if you look at all those deaths from mustard gas or just shells that contained a type of gas, there's like a good 25% of incidences that were just people accidentally killing themselves as well. too. there was leakages from them. Um, I actually learned this from agent orange. People think that agent orange was the most exposure when you were on the field where it was being sprayed. It's actually was the people that were standing and guarding the tents with the drums that were holding the contaminated in there because we didn't have, we didn't have, we don't have, 
have a very good understanding of how to keep these chemicals from leaking out. And I think that's like a lot of issues with stuff we have today, like pollution and all that as well, too. We're not very good at containing things, but we're very good at creating things. And if you look at like just Germany in general, like the Nazis, if we just take the Nazis, for example, um, their idea, they're finding methods of suffocation and trying to find ways to basically just su either suffocate, either to expose people to something. There's a weird path where you start getting into things where that causes them to want to explore more. And then you start looking into them, injecting people with things and then injection stuff and then injecting themselves, trying to perfect this superhuman, like eugenic type thing. And you're just like, it's a, it's just tricky. That's the weird part. The 1920s, 1930s, there is this weird storm, this weird confluence between racism, fascism and science. And so it's like, yeah, it's horrible. And we're still dealing, I think, with the consequences of that in many ways in our societies today. So the end of the First World War, right? So that's the thing. You have large-scale programs and people are like, are we going to like not have a chemical warfare again? Was that just like a weapon that we needed for the trench warfares? But now we've got like planes and long-range bombing and stuff. So, you know, do we need it? And in the 20s and 30s, people were like, uh, you know, often must have was, the other thing we learned was that you can defend against it. So if you've got, well, when we, outset the First World War, right, when gas was first being considered and the first time it was used, your average person on the, on the, on the front had never seen anything like it before. And even like experienced soldiers, the vast majority had no reference point to what gas warfare was, let alone training. They didn't even, they couldn't even, how do you make sense of that? Like if it's, if it's not, you're, you're dealing with explosives and knives, that's what you're used to dealing with, not poison clouds. And so the, it, I kind of really, uh, a colleague of mine, uh, Simon Jones, your story sent me this recently, but basically during the First World War, when they were trying to get their heads around what gas warfare was, they were really clutching at straws. And the best example that they could find to describe it to soldiers and to, to the public was they went back, and this is ironic, this goes back to ancient China, they went back to piracy on the high seas because uh, Chinese pirates would chuck smoke bombs onto ships at like the 80 if you if you ever if you read the papers in the 19th century you'd often see relevant reference to like pirates always of it they get a smoke bomb horrible acrid smoke they chuck it on the deck everyone jumps in the water and makes themselves scarce because if not they just get choked and then they they board the ship so this was the kind of analogy the best analogy they had to tell people what chemical warfare was they were completely surprised by it but by the end of the first world war like troops were really good at protecting themselves against it. And of course there were horrific injuries and it made life really miserable for everyone. But in terms of it being like an overwhelming wonder weapon, not so much. So in the twenties and thirties, this was also clear. So who then do you use all these chemical weapon stocks against? People who are protected. So there was this, there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of examples of use in Abyssinia. This is by, by the Italians against the Ethiopians and, and other examples where people use mustard on people who basically were in you know, flip-flops. And this was basically just indigenous peoples getting you know, by colonial masters. And then of course, the other concern was, what about, what about unrestricted warfare on publics? So the public are also very vulnerable because even though soldiers can be equipped and prepared, if you see gas attacks, mustard attacks on cities, that's gonna be really bad. So in the twenties and thirties, there's a huge concern this, the fear turns more, there's fear about battlefield use again, but the big concern is about like aerial bombardment of cities in a total war. 
and so in the 20s and 30s, you see discussion of chemical warfare being dropped from planes. During the First World War, there was like worry that there's there some examples of horses getting like given disease by spies to the kind of because obviously horses are really important to the war. So there's these couple, there's a couple of stories where there was at least one story where an example of horses being poisoned. Um, sorry, given an infectious disease, I think it was glanders. And so there's also this emerging concern about, well, if they can do that with chemicals, couldn't they also use infectious disease? And so by the outset of the Second World War, not only do most states have these huge chemical weapon programs, not necessarily ready to go, but they certainly have the infrastructures in place to defend an attack. There's also embryonic biological warfare programs starting, again, not very advanced. So, for example, in the UK, we had uh, like five million cattle cakes. So a cattle cake is like the food you give like cows, like a little, like a little cow biscuit, right? But you put anthrax spores in the cow biscuit and you then you could spray it over, you drop them all over the fields, it kills all the cows, right? And so the Britain had this kind of retaliatory weapon just in case the Germans did something. But end of the Second World War, at the beginning, we have these chemical weapon programs which are kind of there and everyone's kind of like deterrent. This is in Europe. In the East, it's different. In the East, you have the Japanese, you have Manchuria, Japan have chemical weapons. Manchuria don't seem to have the capability to wage chemical warfare. And so Japan use overwhelming force and use mustard on a huge scale there. But there's still, this stuff is still being dug out of the ground now. But in Europe, because of the fact that every power was convinced that if they used it first, it would be landing on their cities within a week or so, the seat, like a deterrent thing emerged, but that didn't stop them exploring even more terrifying weapons. So during the Second World War in the West, um, nerve agents start becoming into play. And these are um, agents which affect uh, certain enzymes within the body and basically cause you to go into spasm. Okay, so the natural source of it, not natural source, but there's basically organophosphates, which are used as fertilizers and those sort of pesticides, sorry, used as pesticides and those sorts of things. You start to see within these chemical weapon organizations, people identifying candidate agents, which are so toxic, you couldn't use them in like, as, as, as weed killers or like, they'd kill it because they killed the farmer, right? Yeah. But they start purposefully exploring these. And so in the UK, we see agents like SOMAN being developed, which are specifically developed and designed as like nerve agents for, for delivery. And in, um, in the, in the, um, so in, in Germany, we have, we have SOMAN developed. The UK is also experimenting with its own versions, uh, but the Germans are the most kind of far ahead. Uh, Tabern, sorry, is the one that the Germans developed. I get confused, forgive me, I'll get letters now. But basically the Germans had Tabern, which is their most developed nerve agent. They were even stockpiling it at this point at lower scale. They were setting up production plants. So by the end of the Second World War, there was not only the fear of like mustard, phosgene, lewisite, other types of agent, and in the Eastern theatre, even the, the, the Americans, for example, were producing it on a huge scale in case the Japanese employed against their troops, they would have retaliated with overwhelming use of chemical weapons against Japanese cities. But as it happened, of course, we had Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so that history didn't get trial. Yeah. End of the Second World War, you've got like the Russians, the Americans, the Britons, they know what they've been doing with nerve agents and they know that they know the Germans have been doing something, but they're not quite sure. 
the Britons on paper, they kind of seem like they figured out, like, maybe we should have someone else make our weapons for them. There's a thing called the Vigo Ordnance Plant. And um, and around, I think, after the uh, the bioweapons test ban treaty was originally put out there, the Vigo Ordnance Plant, we were hired by the UK to make 8,000 pounds of, like, anthrax bombs. And it never went to fruition because this band came together. And then so the the I think the facility closed down like in the 70s, but it was bought like in the 2000s by Pfizer. And it's like you picked an old military base as like a place to just make your I, I guess because it's anthrax simulant, you could still make like medicine and stuff out of it. But like to me, the treaty of banning bioweapons and chemical weapons, that's something that's just down on paper. When I look at like the way that we, we're still using that today, I mean, spy, espionage, it might not be like giant military purposes, but. So, so that will come to the minute, I guess. So I think the pitch is, is different on the, bio, the biological chemical weapons side. We'll, we'll get to the prohibition treaties of my hobby horse. So we'll, we'll come to those okay. in, the, in a moment. But like, but yeah, basically you're, you're, you're right in the sense that like the, these huge industrial entities emerge, like with a relationship with defense, it's that typical, like an industrial complex stuff. And there's a market, right? Until the prohibitions come in, until there's proper bans on development of weapons and stockpiling of weapons, states develop and stockpile weapons because, you know. They poisoned alcohol. That's how crazy it got. <laughs> so at the end of the Second World War, you have this race, the US, the Russians want the German scientists, as you were talking about you know, a few moments ago, the West want the, the scientists. They find out that the Germans' nerve agent program is way more advanced than they expected. So very quickly, they grab the British. Britain, they, they go over. A lot of these sites have been destroyed before they got there. But the British and the Americans got there. Some of it was intact. And they were like, OK, so they basically tried to replicate some of the field trials just to make sure that basically the data they took from the Germans, they knew if it was accurate or not. It was. They took samples back. The UK um, uh, basically got the nerve stocks from Germany, took them back and parked them on the end of an airstrip in Wales as their kind of stopgap nerve deterrent until they could work out how to build their own kind of production capability. So they just, and that, as you might imagine, was like incredibly expensive to move, incredibly dangerous to move. It then got put on the field, left there for a decade and then just binned. Because I mean, like this stuff, was open air left so like it was you would yeah i mean it's like it basically put it this way it was almost its own defense system no one was stealing that stuff but they were dead if they tried to it was leaky it was old it was rusty bat rusty missiles a rusty ammunition it's like I said, our containment issue, we have a problem with trying to figure out how to contain these things. Like when I look at the the biological be uh, weapons ban treaty and when I look at the nuclear weapons ban treaty, I'm glad that we put it on paper and we established it because I think everyone realized like this is a very dangerous territory to enter. But when I said it looks good on paper is the fact of we it's like opening Pandora's box. You opened up a door where it doesn't matter if you don't want to do this anymore. You still have that paranoia that the other team is still working on it and they're not 
being honest with you. So that means we need to research and then you have everybody funding their own things. And I mean, that's why we, we look at like, when I look at like things like Operation Midnight Climax or op or the Edgewood experiments where we're testing LSD on military or we're testing LSD on civilians, I'm like, because we, we got to wean off the tit. We can't just cut it off cold turkey. And that's what we tried to do was like, no more of any of this. And then when the paranoia starts setting in, you start going, well, we got to find ways. This won't be warfare because we're not doing broadband attacks or giant scale things but we'll work on smaller populations and individuals so it's seen as like that's seen as more like as an assassination or a poisoning rather than warfare well on the biological side history is almost another favor we're, we're, we're more lucky than we realize so the biological side as you say in the second world war states were developing and chemical and biological weapons but in the 60s the u.s was like Anything we develop will be used, but will be getting used back at us within a, within a decade. Okay, so like, also, what advantage are we getting from this in terms of security? We have nuclear weapons, um, and if anything, these weapons are equalizers, right? So, like, you know, if, if another state starts employing these against us, actually, it, it, it balance it's not advantageous for us. We can't hope to control this weapon and maintain it and have it and keep it as our own. There's a huge proliferation risk. And so in the 60s, the US started basically on the one hand, continuing to try to maintain its sense of full scale dominance, also continue to use um, agents in chemical agents, to herb herbicides and those sorts of things in, in Vietnam. Thousands yeah. But the, in the 60s, there was these drives to prohibit. 1972, the biological weapons ban comes in, as you say, um, normatively, in terms of its moral strength, it's really important. So for example, like in the U US, it's bound into their law about the legality of, of biological weapons in the vast, vast majority of states. It's not just illegal, but very often it's in the constitution. And so while there could be rule breaking and, and, and stuff, the good guys don't make it because the cost of it, and we'll get into this in a moment in terms of cost benefit, the idea of having like a battlefield ready biological weapon, they're not that useful. Like, do you know what I mean? Particularly, and the resources, they're quite resource intensive. And so most states are like, well, actually, no, I'm just going to get the, the new Gucci delivery system of an explosive or whatever it is. They're not, the, they're not a wonder weapon. In fact, the idea of wonder weapons, you know, they, they've got, that's gone. We know even the First World War, the lesson from the First World War was that chemical weapons were this brand new weapon, but they didn't change the war. You know, they just became an inevitable part of it. And so in the 70s, 60s and 70s, you wanted, people said, right, basically, we should try and, prohibit these weapons and, and it was in the interest of most powerful states to actually prohibit them because they didn't want these weapons being used against them i mean like <laughs> horrible and so they this was the area of arms control and like the, the, the peak where there was faith in this idea that because of the bilateral nature of the system that actually you could through kind of bartering get to a situation where you could trust each other to disarm enough you basically said we'll use fists not knives you know, scan yourself on the way in and so same with like you know, rules of dueling and those sorts of things. And you're right, like, so a lot of this is on paper. After the Biological Weapons Convention was negotiated, there was no verification protocol, which basically means it's, you know, you're, you're dependent on powerful states such as the US enforcing it, which they are you know, happy to do. Problem is that, you know, after it was negotiated, Russia went, it's banned, is it? Well, it must be good. So we're gonna vastly expand our, biological weapons program in the 60s and so in the 70s sorry and so that's where you saw 
you know, and after that comes a subversed anthrax leak, which needs a special, have you seen the Schnobel series? Like it needs a special on that, like a docudrama. I don't know if you've heard the history of Savos, the Anthrax League. Um, no, I haven't heard of the history of it. Oh, it's no one knows about it, but it's like, right. So, well, explain it. Come on. I'm going to write. So I'm Rush, interested now. Is it a Netflix doc too? Do I have to watch a Netflix it's, doc? No, it needs to be made though, right? And I need to be paid for it to get made. Right, that's my rules. Right. Anyway, so Anthrax. The I love Russians, how you said that's your rules. I love that. That's the rules. I, I get paid for it, right? <laughs> The Russians are producing have a huge biological warfare program, and they're producing weaponized anthrax at scale. And this isn't just like so anthrax is um, uh, a pathogen, and it can be convinced to form spores. And those spores in the natural world sit in the soil, and then an unfortunate sheep or cow or something ingests them gets anthrax, dies, goes back in the soil. That's their kind of life cycle. However, since like the 19th century, if you were uh, someone who worked with wool, particularly like if you were like a, worked in like a, where it was a loom or a weave thing, the spores would get aerialized, they'd get pushed into the air. And so people started getting anthrax through the lungs. It's called wool sorters disease. And this is like a different etiology. It's like a different disease manifests in a different way. And it's horrible, it kills you, right? Wait, like tailors and seamstresses were getting these? Uh, no, people who were processing sh uh, sheep's wool into um, okay, because it was uh, you know it was all mechanical machines that were doing it. So the Russians and the states were like, that would be a really effective. It's a non-infectious biological weapon. That's to say, if I infect someone with it, they're not going to pass it on. So if you wanted, and so in the nineteen fifties, uh, before nuclear weapons were kind of everyone had them and had their own deterrent, there was these investment into these large mass attack biological weapon systems. Basically, you put tons of anthrax into a shell, into a big shell, you drop it over a city, and the aim is to affect tens and tens of thousands of people, okay? So it's like a, a weapon of mass, like a biological alternative for nuclear weapon, right? And so the hangover was this, of this was that during the kind of 70s and 80s, states were you know, looking at these things as kind of alternative weapons the heyday was kind of gone by this point like because of nuclear weapons this was already the kind of twilight of the idea of biological weapon restoration or by the by there's a guy i can't remember his name should we call him vlad this vlad, vlad. sure okay we'll call him, we'll call him vlad vlad's had a long day at work vlad is working at the anthrax production facility vlad has one job at the end of the day before clocking off for the weekend vlad has to go and replace an air filter the air filter is very important because the air filter is what keeps the anthrax inside the building and not in the local kind of Soviet built specialist town. Vlad goes to replace it and for whatever reason doesn't put the new filter back on. Beautifully, he makes a note in his little book for the handover and says, you know, whoever comes in next, don't turn the machine on. Very bad. Don't turn the machine on. Goes out, we assume for some vodka and some or whatever you know that I was doing. Next day, someone comes in, turn the machine. Don't read, don't, don't read the newspaper. Area the paper, the powder gets aerial, gets blown out of the ducts, and then spreads over the town, and it affects lots and lots of people. I can't remember the final death toll, but you're talking about hundreds of people affected by it. So suddenly, you've got a huge anthrax outbreak in an urban center. Now, anthrax happens occasionally and in rural areas because of 
either the soil infection and very occasionally with this you know animal processing type stuff well that was one of our um things um if you look at the 9-11 commission report one of the things that were happening at 9-11 besides operation vigilant guardian which was like a it basically was about a simulation of a plane going into like a building like that there was another thing about there too, where they actually had a, a, a exercise where they had little canisters that would fake anthrax release and they were going to help, but they ended up canceling all that when 9-11 happened. But I go, so this isn't new. Like we're, that's why I, I talked about like, you don't just stop doing something. You just do it in a different method. I go, there's always this paranoia that someone else is going to attack you in this sense, whether you have it written on paper or not. That's exactly right. So this, this, this anthrax leaks. And of course, what do the Russians do? Well, first of all, they go, no, it's not, not, it's fine. Don't worry about it. It's okay. We have this treaty and the US and the Europeans are a bit like, you've got an anthrax outbreak in an urban center next to one of your pharmaceutical. <laughs> so this is quite suspicious, right? The Russians say, no, 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 it's fine. Um, this was a poisoned meat. This is poison dog meat or something. There's people selling dodgy meat. Everyone's got this dodgy meat. Let's get them anthrax. Very quickly, scientists uh, in the UK and, and other states kind of start going, well, we know a bit about how this disease works and the symptoms that are reported, being reported and the way it's spread, that is not ingestible anthrax. That's come from inhalation. And it takes years and years for truth to come out of what she what happened. And what happened was the Russians were weaponizing the stuff they weren't supposed to be it was illegal um, but then of course end of cold war you see the closure officially closure of all these programs new measures placed in place to increase transparency and so then since the 2000s there's just been this idea that well you know we believe most states we believe it would be very difficult for a, any large state to, to maintain a large-scale biological weapons program because it's kind of like in, we rely on basically intelligence agencies of other organized states to check this. And it's not straightforward to hide. There's ambiguities, but an actual large, active, dedicated program which is putting stuff in munitions, it, it's hard to hide, you know? Like, so we can be reasonably sure of that. What we're less sure of, and this that you talk about, is like this idea of breakout potential, which is the idea that are they maintaining a kind of dormant capacity, some, a certain state, you know, that could be quickly ramped up. And also the idea in this more contemporary understanding of biological and chemical warfare of like much smaller scale, like black ops type stuff. So this is like your poisons, this is your kind of diseases. And this then takes us to the history of assassination, which again would be illegal under international law and all those sorts of things, but it would be much harder to police than like a large scale chemical or biological weapon program. In, in terms of chemical weapons, of course, we saw in the 80s and 90s, we saw a major chemical exchange between, um, between the Iraq, Iran and the Iraqis, but that led ultimately to this new uh, treaty, 1993, we saw the banning, and unlike the Biological Weapons Convention, this one has like verification. This is like the best, even compared to nuclear weapons, the verification and oversight of chemical weapons and disarmament, basically all states signed up and then agreed to disarm and allow inspectors to come in and watch and disarm. And the membership of this was, was you know, is today approaching universal. Nearly every, nearly every state is a member. So the, the prospects of like a large-scale chemical weapons program in most states is also, you know, it's unlikely, except for maybe the cool holdout states. But of course, we saw Syria, 2013, where it was kind of like we, the Western states, knew Syria had a program, 
but for whatever reason politically like what are you going to do like you know what i mean like you what are you going to do they've got a program and then obviously 2013 then when you saw the use of, of nerve agent and later uh, then you saw kind of uh, this op window opening where russia and the us basically came together on that narrow issue and with syria forced them to kind of destroy their stockpiles but then you saw uh, then you saw improvised chlorine use there but that's a different story but the point is that those the era of large-scale programs seems to be over you know like because warfare has changed and in every what history teaches us is that chemical and biological warfare has always been this like weird niche thing but then like the niche the scariest of occupies today is like what we saw in Salisbury in the UK with the assassination of the Skripal, attempted assassination of, of the Skripals and those sorts of things. And so if you look at the history of assassination, and this gets into some of your mind-altering substances, like both the US, the CIA, and uh, the Russians, GRU, and affiliated programs, they explored during the Cold War lots of different chemicals for doing different things. Um, the Russians have always been Culturally, it was like a thing in the military. Poison, political dissenters, they get poisoned more often in Russia. That's what happens. And so there's a long history of, of assassination. There's a long history of assassination of exotic chemicals, be that kind of radiological materials on umbrella tips, or more recently, uh, the use of other types of, of, of exotic chemicals in, in poisoning dissent. And so that's the most, re that's the kind of modern one, which is, so the, so example, Novichok, is the chemical that was used and that was a specifically developed nerve agent that was developed for this type of application it's like it's a kind of you know it's a specialist developed weapon when it happened i was like it was almost like a dinosaur right walk down the street because you're yeah. kind of like this is so cold war like this is like it's really retro like you're like really it's like it's almost like they've got out a um, 18th century revolver or something it's kind of like that's that's vintage, but like that's that's kind of, but of course, a classic. It's, it's a classic, yeah, it's hallmarking. Okay, so, but, so that's the kind of, you use the exoticness of it becomes the, the, the appeal of it, but because it becomes a performative weapon. So, but you see how that type of use of a chemical weapon is so different to what we're talking about, with like industrial scale use on the fields of, of Ypres and those sorts of things. Well, it's important that people understand, like I didn't, like when people talk about like the CIA has methods of giving somebody a heart attack. They do. It's in their recorded documents. They also have methods of giving somebody cancer as well. So as crazy as that sounds, there's documented proof, especially I found out with the diving into the JFK topic that they did have methods of that. One thing that's very interesting is a documentary. It's 693 ways to kill Castro. And they talked about things that, I mean, insane assassination attempts that sound like it's made of a freaking movie. And I think the general public sees glimpses of this. I think we noticed things like the interview, for instance. It was a joke about how to kill Kim Jong-un by handshaking him and you have poison on your hand. I mean, it's here. We're not – this is not new to us. But what I want the education aspect of it for a lot of people about understanding this more is that when you start noticing, like you said, a dinosaur walking down the street type scenario to – 
anybody that's an expert and understands this type of stuff or understands biological warfare, you can pick up those flags, but for the general public, it's going to be right over their head. And I start going, how many of this is very performative as it's a country pulling out something way from the old books, just because another country is going to know what that is, like sending a message. And to us, it just seems like, oh, this is a random old school type thing. You know, like it's a glad we don't have that happening every day. It's like, well, it was it was for a specific purpose of letting anybody that saw that that might be from another country would know what that was and be able to say that not the general public. It's kind of like hidden war. It's like doing it like without media attention like we see the basic stuff now when it comes to like if a bomb goes off we know that was a, a we, that was an attack by whoever and the media will tell you whatever individual did it or whatever act did it but when you see like crazy things like outbreaks and stuff like that and you start wondering what is that like a lot of people don't question that they go oh that's just a freak of nature no necessarily it might just be a hidden message that we are not meant to receive it's meant for somebody else to receive that message and i got this from um a guy on my show was talking about smart buildings and I go, what's the point of having like a smart building, a building that like talks to you and stuff like that. He goes, well, you can incorporate them in office spaces where there's uh, there could be in a potential anthrax attack, you know, it would be able to sense that like a carbon monoxide detector. And then I start, I start looking into everything that we have in our homes. And I start like, when I was a kid, I almost died from carbon monoxide. It was a silent killer. I, we wouldn't have known, but that's, all of our like a, initial inventions, lead paint and nurseries, all these types of things, we're exposed to this 24-7. And it's, it's not like crazy to think that you would just look into what that is and trying to find ways to specifically target certain aspects to make it either more lethal or less lethal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the chemical and biological weapons today are like, they're scary and they're weird. And they are, they are, they potentially are of mass destruction, but I think that tends to be overplayed. I think the, they tend to be weapons that are, well, certainly, you know, they, or they can be, one of the niches they fill is this, they're scary, right? They're, and they're, they're shocking the first time they're employed, particularly as a terror weapon, all those sorts of things. And so one positive is the fact that throughout, because of public health and because of um, anti-terrorism more generally, like the defenses against these weapon systems are pretty good like we understand how they work and we understand how to respond to them and often the natural stuff is more terrifying or the incidental industrial stuff is more damaging to people than a potential thing that an individual or a small group could do so it's i think it's important not to blow the as in i don't find them interesting because i think they're the biggest threat to humanity or the, the biggest security threat or even think that they're under examined as a security threat I think they're interesting as a kind of a confluence, as you say, of the kind of this, they're an interesting way into thinking about how states work and there's a relationship between state and what safety is and what risk is and ethics of military research. And that for me is kind of why the murkiness of them. And in some respects, like they're a category, like they're a prohibited category of weapon, biological chemical weapons, but they're like, actually they fill lots of different niches. So they're, they can almost be examined independent of each other. So for example, like as assassination weapons or as terror weapons or as weapons of warfare. As weapons of warfare, I think, you know, it's safe to say that that heyday of them or the heyday of their potential seems to be waning. But as a weapon in the gray area of warfare to cause dissent, to cause to, to sow confusion, that's where they have unfortunately maintained a niche, even though the threat posed by them is probably comparable in many respects to conventional forms of explosives and those types of things. Think about the anthrax attacks in the US, like 
responding to that was incredibly, incredibly expensive. If we think about Salisbury in the UK, I mean, in some respects, the Salisbury attack, I mean, it was a horrific thing and it, it, it led to the death of a, of a local woman. It was very small scale in terms of the human effects it ended up having. And it, in many respects, has fed into how police now respond to attacks. And I'm not going to lie to you. I don't know what that is. Oh, this story. So in you, so the script, this is the script holes, right? So 2018, two, a couple are found um, semi-conscious on a bench in a really small, sleepy town near my house. And it's assumed that they're, they're like either really drunk or have had a drug overdose. Or is that why they call it Sleepy Town? That is why it's called Sleepy Town, right? Everybody's so sleeping. everyone's sleeping. These guys were definitely sleeping. So there's an assumption eventually that a lot of people walk past them. Eventually someone stops to speak to them. They call an ambulance because the, these guys aren't well. And again, it's assumed drug overdose. The guys get admitted to hospital. At some point, it becomes clear who this guy is. And this guy is a former Russian GRU agent, defector, came over in the 80s or 90s. And the individual is actually quite well known. He's been working on a book with a local journalist, with, sorry, with, a, with a national journalist. Like, he's ex-Russian Secret Service. So, like... They killed him. They killed him. People, people start, like, this... And his symptoms are not the same as a heroin overdose. It becomes clear that he's had more kind of fast-like poisoning, a nerve agent. Now, farmers occasionally get this from, from pesticides, but very rarely. Nerve agents are the most likely cause. Very quickly, it becomes clear he's been affected by a nerve agent. And then, of course, everything goes bonkers. All the press come down, and it becomes this huge story about, it takes a few days, they identify the agent. Russia, of course, go, it wasn't, wasn't us, don't point the finger at us, you can't prove anything anyway. Maybe it was a leak from one of your research facilities, maybe a, it, it was maybe it was someone from Ikea, it's on about whatever. They basically just, the, the usual default Russian response, which is just throw disinformation out, misinformation out, which is possible. It becomes very clear that what happened is they'd gone out, they'd come back to their house, he'd opened the door, a agent, from a state, we assume Russia, it seems sensible to assume Russia, GRU had daubed the door handle with um, Novichok, which is a very specialist nerve agent. Um, it got in his hands, he, he touched his daughter who was with him, and then they both went out to eat at a local ZZ's, which stayed open for a couple of days afterwards because they hadn't worked out what had happened, and they got, they then got affected. Over two or three days, this became clear that because uh, also a, a policeman who first went to the house the first time, he also got ill. So very clear, it quickly became clear what had happened. And so then there was this huge thing to decontaminate the house, decontaminate the ZZ, which was covered in, which was covered in Novichok where they'd been sitting. Um, and also there was this kind of attempt to work out what had happened in terms of like criminal, legal stuff. And they basically, they even traced back, they, they eventually they come out, they sort of, worked out who it might be from security cameras and they, they followed all this. They went to a hotel room where these guys have been and it becomes clear that it's two Russian agent, GRU agents um, and open source, open media, uh, sorry, um, was it open? Open source campaigners basically, they get hold of information. They, 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 they along with the government, also name the suspects. 
Um, so this was all happening, and, and then eventually the two guys go on TV. Rush, the first day, Putin says, who you're saying it is, they're just normal guys. They're not GRU agents. They're just like sports supplement salesmen. You can get to see the video online. The next day, they go on Russia Today and get interviewed by the friendly journalist who says what's going on and we're like oh yeah we're just we went to Salisbury to go and see their church tower it's nothing to do with us hilarious like horrific but completely mad like to see them been interviewed and pretending to be tourists when online the same day with the images of them graduating from their from the, the trade the, the military officer training schools like circulating online so it was clear who they were so we assume this is kind of Putin saying look what I can do, you know, like, I mean, it makes sense. I think a lot of people hear this and it either gets chalked into what they would call a conspiracy or they would get chalked into things where they just get scared. And I go, I think actually better education and talking about these things is like, you have to understand is that once a door opens, it never fully closes. And when we talk about terrorist attacks, it's really weird how we get into this aspect of like, when we see an individual with all these anthrax bombs or something like that, and we go, is that a terrorist? It might just be a crazy person, or it could be someone that's hired to be that crazy person to do those attacks. And I bring up, I bring up the point, like when you look at, um, there's a thing called blue sky memo and it's in the CIA. You can look it up. Um, just search the term blue sky memo. And when you do, it's that, and in this it's referenced in nine 11, the commission report is that there are points and there are procedures where a government organization, um, especially over here, CIA, FBI, can act on their own accord without any validation or verification from an, whoever is in charge. So that means you can either have the whole agency do things without anybody, no president making an order to do so without even knowing about it, or you could have individual actors. And the whole point of this is, is amnesty is not, not really forgiving, but it's an aspect of, I didn't know, and then, so when you get interviewed, you go, I, I have no clue. We don't have anything like that scheduled. Well, yeah, well, there are individual actors working inside of your own corporation to be able to do the acts for you. And I don't think this should scare people. I think you should just understand like the extents of it all as well, too. I mean, I told you off air, Howard Hunt, one of his giant interviews was talking on his deathbed to his son, told his son to grab his videotape and record. And these are one of these secret agents like in, during the Kennedy, Kennedy or no, during the Watergate thing. And he starts talking about ideas of, oh, yeah, we would joke about slathering LSD on a driver's steering wheel, having them get high from touching the steering wheel and driving into oncoming traffic. Like, you're not only talking about killing the person, you're talking about killing anybody that he runs into. Or, you know, you get into these aspects of things where I start kind of just letting, like, better understanding of it. It's not meant to scare you. It is scary shit, but it's also, it helps you understand more about everything that goes on around you where you can start noticing flags and things of that sort as well too just to make yourself more aware and just appreciating that you know this is you know statecraft is what this is a part of it and so as a good citizen, concerned citizens you find a way you try and you know, where you can shine a light so for example in the uk one issue is that there still hasn't been a kind of um major investigation into the whole response to it, which I think would be really useful because it was such an unusual event. I think in understanding kind of how public communication worked, how this is going to affect future responses to stuff, particularly because of the disinformation aspect, it actually made it really hard to do good public health messaging because it was kind of getting picked up and twisted by disinformation actors. So there's a lot of interesting questions there about how to be transparent in democracy in times of crisis. And when you're dealing with, um, what do they call them? like oh, basically bad bad actors you know how do you 
you know, if, if, um, if your words are getting twisted, for example, if you say on one, if you're trying to reassure people that something's not scary, and then the, the person did it goes, you see, it's not bad what we did. That's not, that's uh, misusing your kind of messaging. And unfortunately, as you talk about with, with the, the consequences, a, a lady called Dawn Sturgis in Amesbury a few months later, uh, which is another town nearby, got very ill, and her partner also got very ill, and they'd found um, a perfume bottle, and with a spray perfume bottle, we think a charity shop bin. Um, and this was a Novichok delivery um, vial. It was what, we don't know if it was the one they used in the attack, we don't know how it got there, but basically um, put the Novichok on her skin, and our partner got it on his skin, and she died. And this is like, you know, so that act was almost, well, it was, it was terrorism in slow motion, right? Like it was, you know, it was kind of done, it, the effects were felt yeah. later. And sadly, you know, you may, we may yet see, I, I think it's unlikely now that there's going to be other things to turn up, but, you know, the fact that that was discarded in such a way or maybe planted, we don't know, you know, it, 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 there wasn't great care taken to protect it wasn't like a targeted assassination where it was very clean and decided to be happy. It, it wasn't. It, yeah, it was. Well, it was. Uh, take an American example, which would be one of the things that's in pop culture history: the death of Easy E. There was a movie. I don't know if you know who Easy E is, but he's. Part I don't. Of, come on, tell me. It's this it. rap organization, um, part of NWA. Um, which is like Dr. Dre. It's like all these people. And Suge Knight is the best example. Suge Knight was in the news, I think, in like 2013. Well, I don't know if it was 2013 or 2016. He ran over two people in his car. He's a gangster. And he had two people that were like screaming um, at the filming of the movie when they were doing it. He just ran them over and then backed them back over and then ran them over again. He went to jail and everything. But there's a conspiracy behind this thing. And it's kind of shown in the movie um, Straight Out of Compton uh, with Ice, Ice Cube's son, where they're beating up Eazy E. And then there's a one person bends down and people think that's when they injected him with HIV and AIDS because easy E randomly got AIDS and then dies after this confrontation with Suge Knight. So like, there's this whole conspiracy that they injected him with this type of thing. And I mean, there's conspiracies like that. Cause there's just questions. And I don't think people understand is like, I mean, is that a possibility? Sure. I have no clue, but that's a thing. It leads into bigger scandals. There was a poison candy myth about people poisoning candy. Don't eat Halloween candy. That's there's two recordings of and that in also, history. Also, that's old. I mean, so you go back to poison well myths that go back to like the 14th century. You've had people claiming minorities are poisoning or some unknown outsider. And so much of my work now, and I think I, I think I'm very similar to you in the sense that. I'm interested in why people find conspiracy and disinformation so interesting. And I accept the fact that it's because people are curious, right? They find, and people listen and read stories for different reasons. Some people like facts. They just want facts. Other people like stories and they like being interesting and they like, they like the interesting stuff. And the big problem I have in my day to day is the fact that that kind of gets weaponized. So for example, like you have, it's very difficult to distinguish between someone who's just asking questions or just saying, is this feasible? Is this likely? Is this like something that's worth considering or talking about? Or someone that's, or an actor that's purposely muddying the water, saying like, how can we know? How can we be sure? Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. And that's when that's done at a time to kind of defer or distract, distract or confuse or bewilder people. And that's a really big issue. Like how, 
often the time when people, for example, in my area, the times that when people are most interested in talking about chemical and biological weapons is it's times of tragedy. It's times where you're most likely to see very, very active disinformation campaigns, which makes having like, like our discussion today is not open and frank. We're not trying to like share facts. We're not trying to like tell people how the world is. We're just kind of exploring different interesting ideas is all people to go read around and, and make their own minds up. But having those conversations in contexts where it's fraught is really difficult, right? So like uh, Ukraine, um, the Russian diplomats, they came out uh, a few times in the past few months and they've made claims which are like, as an academic, I've got, I'm supposed to be kind of, but essentially bullshit. Like there's no getting around it. Like it's that thing where you're like, there's no way you could believe what you're saying. It's and it's claims like, for example, that uh, birds are spreading disease. They're trying to weaponize birds. It's, it's nonsense. But it's stuff that's uh, been designed to, it's like a dead cat strategy, right? You just, in a time where you're getting a lot of stick publicly, you say to your propaganda guys, go and make stuff up. We need some cover here to have, you know, we need to be able to do what we're doing. And so they go out, they get their crayons out and they make up crazy stuff. And so for me, it's interesting where I get questions about like, at the moment, the big one that the Russians are pushing, and this is like, this went to a security council meeting. So this is like diplomats who you'd expect to at least come up with credible nonsense, right? Like you, as in like the default would be then to like fact check or debunk, debunk what they're saying. But if it's completely nonsensical, where do you start with fact checking that stuff? And so it's that sort of dynamic where it's like, trying to have that conversation uh, particularly on social media where things turn into an argument and those sorts of things. As well, well, we just got to be careful because I think when we say conspiracy, there's conspiracy and then there's fantasy. Conspiracy is real legal language that was actually invented by the CIA in 1951. Um, they say conspiracy to commit violence, conspiracy to commit murder. That's used in law courts all the time. But the way that people hear conspiracy, they think it's like some type of thing which we need to separate, which is fantasy. Now, the biggest one I can give you an example of, which is the COVID origins coming from that lab in Wuhan. Now, a lot of people would consider that conspiracy. A lot of people would consider that accurate. But where I say it goes into conspiracy is the idea that it was intended to be used as a biological warfare. Now, what is it a fact if you look through history, could it just be people were experimenting on shit and something got out and then it was kind of an accidental thing? There's plenty of people I've talked to who actually work for the NIH and the WHO who do believe that it was an accidental leak situation. Yes. Yep. I'm like, there's so there's a there's a point when we talk about conspiracies where there's like propaganda and shit that goes out there, Russian disinformation. Every country does these types of disinformation acts. That's important to understand. But there's also a thing of like you, when you we talk about like things, you just think critically on shit. Is it out of the realm of possibility that all throughout history, what have people always done? Research something necessarily without the full information and next thing you know, cause something where it was unintended to. That is where you can fall the line on the things. But then you get into like crazy shit where people think the earth is flat and all this. That goes a little bit too far. But I think it's also because. When you find out something is crazy or something is like real and it's like, oh, my God, they did what? Then it just causes you to like your brain starts to melt. Like you start thinking <laughs> yeah, everything yeah. is like that. And I mean, I yeah. get it. Like I can I mean, you can rationalize QAnon as well, too. I mean, we all care about kids right now. Is it what they said it was? 
No, but Epstein was real. <laughs> so, I mean, you get into this aspect of like, it's not necessarily like covering for people who believe QAnon, but it's like just understanding someone's pathway into this situation where they start thinking like this. I think when we talk about understanding a situation, we also have to understand how a person could view it as that as well, too. Like, I don't, I'm not, I don't follow the QAnon people. I don't like any of that type of shit, but I can understand like where you would get so passionate about something. It's like you find out the world's like rigged. If you find out that like you live in like a china regime or something like that and you start figuring out the internet is not what it, you've been shown it's actually way more than that you've been censored your whole life your brain's gonna fucking melt like you're gonna you're gonna be in your seat like what the hell's going on it's the same thing where i tell people like the importance of understanding this type of topic you've really got to understand is like when you think that no there's we have a ban on that there's none of that happening right now then you see like a guy i think he was in a court ceremony he took poison and he drank it right on screen. Oh, yes. It was the uh, war criminal, wasn't it? Uh, so yeah. you go, what the hell is he scared of? Like, and then you start realizing like, oh, no, there's like a whole other side of things that just is out of the general public's view. It's hidden warfare. It's secret wars. It's all these types of things of propaganda, all these types of stuff to sow seeds of doubt. The best thing to do that you can do as a government is to get your own people to turn against each other or just live blindly and not ask questions. I mean, I'm not, like I said, I'm not anti-government, but I think it's not really even a, a government aspect. It's just really smart strategy. I mean, there's things that they're doing we can't know about. That's fine. But there's also things of like where we have to draw a line of like, we get into the military testing, Edgewood experiments. Edgewood was testing LSD on your own military. Now, they took it as like, you signed up to be on our fucking military, so you basically signed away your right to be able to consent to this. Then we get to Operation Midnight Climax, where you have them just giving civilians drugs. Like, you got to make sure that we understand the clear markers of that design because you that's there's ethical issues, and then there's kind of where they're understanding it of it's not unethical because they work for us well civilians don't work for you you got to kind of make sure that line doesn't and it's you know it happens in every government it's not just one government it's just about i think when you understand these when you talk about the it's not really to scare people it's to necessarily just figure out how like you can understand how everything works when you start looking at like how they're viewing it compared to how you're viewing it and i think you could do the same thing with history I think that's exactly right. I think you know, people are unfinished projects. History is an unfinished project. And so it's an art. And so it's not a case of, I think the biggest mistake people often make in terms of getting into arguments about external social media is people go online and either expect to be dealing in facts or want a fact straight away. They're like, well, a factual position that they can adopt and then feel comfortable with. But they're not usually available at the moment you want them because things are muddy and complicated. And so I think that's kind of, and it's really hard because that balance between having a safe space to explore ideas, to talk about things, to evaluate and critically have an open conversation about why isn't this likely, have a kind of educational context, because where you both try and work out how likely or realistic something is. That is one thing. The problem is that that's really hard to do in an open space sometimes, because the second you ask certain questions, that's seen as kind of challenging or pushing back or distracting from the issue, you know? And so that's a really interesting thing. And I, yeah, and I think that's why it's really important to have lots of discussions about like this. In my issue is like speaking to different people in different forums, in different settings. And I think that's, that's how you develop a richer understanding of things, you know, like kind of 
yeah so i don't really use my social media i just post and ghost so i put up one post a day i just i can't do it i can't handle it um but i am a part of some education forums like especially like there's an education forum like with jfk and all that as well too which is like all the experts talking now they have loan nutters and they have people that aren't loan nutters all I'm doing is seeing people in their like 60s that are just arguing and being up at like four o'clock in the morning and having like arguments with each other where I just go like, is this what you end up wanting your life to like you, you can't get context from text. So the best spot to have these conversations is to talk about it more, even if like you're in a general discussion like we just did, you know, about even if you're having a friendly conversation, it just needs to be either talked on the phone. It needs to be because you're going to end up reading something that somebody says and they might just be asking a question. And next thing you know, you lead into this aspect of like, are they making fun of me? Are they questioning my judgment? Are they, you know, it's like, no, we go to the internet thinking that it's going to be a fact thing 100% because it's examined as a library. But when you look at what the internet really is, it's a library that's filled with nonfiction, fiction, biographies, all these types of things. And you kind of have to look at like, is water real? Is that something you need to question? Uh, I don't know. But, you know, you got to leave people as long as you're not hurting people i don't care what you do that's yeah, all i gotta it's, say it's a bit like if you walk into a room and some people are sat down and you try and start a conversation and some people are drunk and having a party in the same room some people are working some people are on a date like you would have to how you would engage with those people and how you would talk would be completely different yeah, on social media you're all thrown in together and you've got no idea someone sat at his desk working someone's just there shit posting like it's just and so it's, it's learning to negotiate that. It's a huge opportunity to interact with people. But as you say, you have to like this, the art of spotting social conventions and getting people in the kind of like to interact with you the way you want to interact with them is really a challenge. And this is why this show is so cool. I think the way this open format's great. Um, it's also, I'm going to do some plugging there. Is that okay? Yeah. Great. So if the biological stuff, I'm on like a complete mission. So I, I started deciding to read everything. I wanted to read every major history on the area. Um, it's because I had the third baby. So I, it was nice to have a bit of like downtime in the three in kids. The yep, three yeah, kids. Man. So an hour, oh. I got an, a nice hour of just doing good for you. Dude. Nice. Good for yeah. you. Yeah, Craft out some personal time. Exactly right. So um, at the moment, I decided to do a complete history of biological and chemical warfare, going back as far as possible. So I do like my own history. But then like I've been getting pe and then people write in and tell me I'm wrong. And all the experts come and speak to me and it's lovely. So I'm actually every time they correct me, it's like I'm developing and I'm learning and or they'll come and give me new sources or but it's really cool. I get crap for having like a person that doesn't believe climate change exists. And then the next day I'll have someone on talk about renewable <laughs> energies. It's like. I, I tell people, as long as you're not hurting people, like I, I'll talk to you, but you know, if someone believes the earth isn't real or all this type of stuff, I'll entertain it. I'll listen to it. Cause it's not my job to tell someone that they're wrong. But there's something I've been trying to negotiate. So like with, I get, I get people on from government. I also get like open, open, like open, was it open information campaigners come on who like probably would not be those natural best bedfellows for things. And I guess, yeah, trying to kind of make a space where it's kind of is what it is and you will get heckled and get shouted at and get things wrong but it's kind of for me it's like it's a great way of i know it sounds really cheesy but like having conversations and starting conversations with people it's, it's a brilliant way of doing it so if people are interested in the history of this uh the, it's called poisons and pestilence the podcast um and you can find it on all major players and i'll bombard you with links and those sorts of things um but yeah so at the moment we're on the 16th century next week i'm looking at the history of the American, I would touch upon the American Civil War in a few weeks' time and how chemical weapons weren't used there. 
and at the moment I'm looking at Chinese stink pots and those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, so it's all cool. Well, and we just had this crazy special on nerve agents from a guy called Dan Casita, which was brilliant as well. So. Well, I'll make sure I link it all in the description, Brett. It's seriously been a pleasure having you on the show. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode.